Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. Thank you very much for taking some time out of your day to listen to the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. In studio, we have... Oh, my David, that's me. Hi. Kieran Murphy's here. Hello, there, Owen, and everyone listening at Ken home. Ken Early is here, at least in body. Ken. How do you mean, Owen? We know where your spirit is today. Where is it? It's halfway up the deathly slow incline of the New York, New York roller coaster. Oh. Sin City, Ken, you're home away from home. You're not attending this Conor McGregor fight, and you just yeah. you're burning at the thought of missing out and all that fun in your favorite city. <laughs> yeah, it was just too soon after the last one. You know, I didn't, I couldn't face going back there. And you know what? Actually, my my problem was my my real problem. Uh, when I when I got back from there the last time, my eyes were practically falling out of my head. Well, why? Because bright lights? No, because uh, I go around wearing contact lenses, you know, because I'm very vain. I work, go around wearing contact lenses in this, but but that's okay. That's usually fine. But if you're in Las Vegas, the air is so dry, and I mean, in the you're, you're indoors pretty much all the time, uh, walking around these kind of air-conditioned Febreze-smelling um, casino resorts, and I swear on. The, all the fluid dried out of my eyeballs. And I was staring at the world out of these pair of little red raw pits in my face. <laughs> and I honestly, it was so horrible that it put me off the idea of going. I, I couldn't, I thought about going and I thought, you know what, I really just don't fancy it. It's what, it, it's what gets, you know, hardcore revelers every time when they go to Las Vegas. <laughs> the absence of eye drops. <laughs> yeah, oh, I, I can't do any more than three days in that place. So. I thought, oh no, I've got Without to, my eye drops. I've got a serious problem here. You know, why didn't I just, oh no. Uh, but then it turned out I just bought some like gel tears and it cleared right up, you know, after a couple sure. of days. So uh, that's what I probably should have brought them over. But it, it just, it sort of put me off, you know what I mean? Yeah. I kind of, I didn't have to... You know, maybe, but he's, I like the way that he's talking now about wanting to go somewhere else. McGregor? Yeah. Well, actually his, his words, I can't repeat his words on, but he had a two word, a two word formula. And the second word was Vegas. First word, first word wasn't last. It was, yeah, (laughs) yeah, because he doesn't like it. I think anywhere he complains about the dry air as well. I thought that he was making some kind of metaphor 
about, he says, if you go to Las Vegas in the desert, it's very dry. You don't get animals out here. The only animals you get are scaly reptiles, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I thought he was talking about Dana White. But he may actually just have been talking about the Scaly reptiles. the dryness of of the desert air, mm. and he's you know he's he's right about it, Owen. Yeah, I'd say take it uh, take it elsewhere, take it somewhere uh, coastal, somewhere with a sea breeze. Well, thankfully, Peter Carroll is going to do some journalizing for us over there. Peter is an MMA writer who has made. I don't know if he wears glasses. I don't know if he's got contacts, Ken. But he's he's gone big on this. Well, maybe Ken has the answer to that question. No, does. He, no, he doesn't. So, uh, he doesn't well, maybe, maybe he wears, maybe knows? he wears contacts. I don't but know. That's the, that's the thing about contacts, you don't know who's wearing them. <laughs> yeah, but even even without the contacts, maybe his eyes do get dry, regardless. I wouldn't be surprised, but obviously, it's aggravated a little bit if you wear contacts for you know eighteen hours in in a row. Mm. If we have time, I'm sure we'll get to this. Yeah, we've got US Murph on the insane record-breaking form of Steph Curry and the Golden State Warriors today. But I got to ask you boys about last night's Premier League action. Oh, Ooh. just as well you didn't ask me two hours ago on. Well, three hours ago. Uh, because I saw what time match of the day was all at, and I just said, actually, the hell with this. I'm not going to find out who won the games and watch match of the day completely fresh. Now, I know that you guys were sending WhatsApps to our group, but I didn't read any of them until half nine this morning. Uh, you had the same issue as me then. You're a, a Virgin Media customer, Murph, because I tweeted about this last night and people mm. said... Just put on, just put on um, Sky London or something like this, uh, uh, BBC London mm. on, on your on your Sky platform. A lot of people assume you have Sky. I don't know why you do that. Why I, would you I assume? Mean, surely there's a reasonably fifty-fifty split. And I don't know what the split is in Ireland between Sky and Virgin customers. Maybe. I'd be interested to hear. I'd be, I'd be fascinated <laughs> to hear. This sounds like an ad actually at the moment. But yeah, no, I had the same issue. Uh, I ended up watching a little bit of Nolan actually. Did you, Stephen Nolan? Yep. Did, uh, did Carl Frampton make an appearance? Carl Frampton made an appearance, and as I had tweeted in advance. Nesbitt made an appearance too. He no. Nesbitt was on there. Yeah, you're kidding me. Yeah, not live. Well, no, not live. Oh, Nesbitt from the Frampton. Oh no, no. They so they played that. So they had Frampton on. They said uh, Stephen Nolan introduces the <laughs> drunken James Nesbitt clip, yeah. and then uh, Frampton is slightly awkward. The only bit he's, where he's slightly awkward because he probably just want to be slagging off a, a guy who could be a good mate of his for mm. making a bit of a fool out of himself. So they say, well, listen, Carl, we've actually got a clip here of uh, James wants to explain what was going on or whatever so they panned is this really incongruous clip of James Nesbitt in Singapore or somewhere like this some stultifyingly hot looking place yeah. where he's uh, beaming back this video and he's saying hi Carl uh, sorry I didn't get to chat to you after the fight last night I I had lost all power of speaking and uh, he made a, a good few very uh, very nice self-deprecating gags actually yeah. yeah I warmed for the first time I started warming to Nesbitt he, he, he took it on the he's chin he's actually quite charming <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 there's something yeah. about kind of a blokey you know every man charm to him mm. I mean I, I, as I was fast forwarding through the end of Nolan I did notice that it's kind of turned into a chat show because Louis Walsh was on and I, I saw as the recording started but it is a chat show no but I, I always thought it was like a a politics, like kind of a question time. That is a bit of everything. Yeah, sometimes he, he, he had something about. I think they had something about. Uh, well, they had Frampton, they had Louis Walsh, and in between they had some hard hitting debate. Could have been to do with the refugee crisis. I didn't actually see it. I mm. saw a lot of people get were getting very angry. I was reading at the mm. time. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I don't know. I mean, they sent. They have on. It's sometimes like God, you know Vincent Brown, and sometimes it's more like um, Brendan O'Connor. Yeah, Ray yeah, Darcy. yeah. Because I was expecting him to be like shouting at people in the audience because that's what I always used to fast forward through to watch matches of the day in the middle of the week. But then he was sitting there being all jocular. Did you with... see the clip of him being on with Frampton previously? I saw the gif. Yeah, that, there was uh, a gif Frampton, Frampton landing a jab on Stephen Olsen. Anyway, we haven't even talked about the football. Okay. That's what I start with. <laughs> 
Sorry, just every time Nolan gets a mention, I I end up talking about it for ten minutes. One of our number, uh, whose name will whose name will not be mentioned here. Mm-hmm. Safe to say, he's sitting over there at the producer's desk, mm-hmm. rubbing his hands with glee, and his name is Simon Hick. <laughs> right. Might have put a small wager last night. Got very excited. Can I tell people this time? Yeah, I can. Yeah, yeah small wager on Manchester United to win the league <laughs> after the exciting <sighs> Knights Premier League action. What do you think his chances are, Ken? It's it's a great value bet. 30, 33, 33 to, one. to one. Great value bet. Yeah, thirty three to one sounds about right. Which is to say, it has a one in thirty three chance of happening. Uh, one in thirty four chance. Oh well, yeah, of course. <laughs> House always wins, Ken. Um, I think I, I don't know. I mean, when do 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 Manchester United still have to play Leicester City? They do have to play Tottenham. I'm pretty sure about that. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I remember them drawing one-one with Leicester when when Vardy broke the record. Um, so I guess they probably have to play them still at Old Trafford, right? Um, they have to play Tottenham away on the 10th of April. Yeah. And then they play Leicester City on the 1st of May at Old Trafford, a title decider, according to Simon Hick. And have they already the played? May. Have they played both games against Manchester City? Uh, they play Manchester City away on the 20th of March. <laughs> So I mean, win those three games. All I'm saying is, you but know, then win those three games. They're definitely not going to win those three games. It's three of the four teams above them, and they have a chance to. And the other one is Arsenal, so they're definitely not going to win the league. Yeah. So, uh, so I still wouldn't, I still wouldn't be too happy if my life was riding on that bet. On the other hand, Man United win all of their games between now and the end of the season, given the fact that they have to play those three teams. Mm. Actually, this is still a stupid. What was your start. standout moment from last night? Senate result, Senate storyline. <laughs> Arsenal thrown in towel. Ashley yeah. Williams. Yeah, it unbelievable. Just, yeah, I, 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 I mean, I was watching the game that was on TV, which was the Liverpool Man City game, and you know, just following the Arsenal game on scores. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> I mean, I was, you know, what can you say? I mean, when they're one 0 up, you think, oh well, there they go. Now they're they're gonna. They'll win that one two or three nil. I mean, Swansea have been have been really terrible, you know, for most of the season, uh, and certainly away. To, although away to Arsenal, they've got this ridiculous record. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't thinking about that. I thought, well, you know, Swansea are going to go down there, or Arsenal will will claw back some of the um, damage from the other night. And you know, Spurs are losing as well, so could turn out to be not such a bad week. Didn't didn't work. <laughs> I was actually watching it this morning. I was actually getting annoyed at Arsenal. Oh, typical Arsenal. Then, you know, when they, they were, when they scored their goal, it's like, they win this down 4-0, you know? And like, what does that even prove? You know, getting annoyed that Arsenal will win this game at a canter, you know? Uh, and then all of a sudden, that happens. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. Like, it is actually very hard to believe that a team that good could be that terrible. But the rage as well, the rage of the Arsenal uh, internet is just, you know... Beyond anything I've seen, I mean, I find it hard to imagine Arsene Wenger coming back from this. Apart from the fact that there's so many terrible things have happened, and he's just always there. I saw one vine of a supporter. I can't remember who tweeted this, but the, this the Wenger's doing his post-match interview, and the supporter is just right up to the screen. All you're seeing is his finger. He's giving Wenger the finger. F you, scream! Yeah. But with a real rage, like a real. Yeah. This isn't subsiding anytime this soon. This is the strongest emotion this man has yes, felt yes, in years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I saw the, uh, it was Clive Martin on Twitter writing, and this was echoing sort of my own experience because I was I obviously wasn't seeing this game happen live. Watching Arsenal fall apart through other people's tweets 
feel like Field Marshal Haig receiving the numbers of dead v- via telegram. Ashley Williams, was it, before quietly taking another sip of my tea, mm-hmm. trying not to imagine the horrors of what's actually <laughs> happening. <laughs> it was like, uh, you just imagine the, uh, I remember seeing that and thinking myself, imagining myself back in the Emirates, you know, when they were losing to Barcelona. Yeah, by the way, have Arsenal started booing every time Arsenal had a goal? I know that when the, the Rutledge goal went in, they were booing a refereeing decision. They thought mm-hmm. it was a foul. Well, they booed Wenger when he took off Joel Campbell. Yeah. It was a real, a real bad atmosphere. Like nobody's, it's no one supporting the team anymore. No. It's, it's the search for victims. A, three, a three nil second leg win against Barcelona is what that club needs. Yeah. Just to get a little pep in its step again. All right, we have got a football podcast to put out later today, so there'll be loads more on that. It's US Murph time. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game. No matter who wins or loses. I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behavior. You're being extremely truculent. Whatever truculent means, if that's good, I'm there. Strike three called, and the Giants have won the World Series in Detroit. And he's out on his feet. Frank Cappuccino's going to let him keep going. Get it! Caught! Touchdown! Touchdown, Gordy! Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! So, Brian. And you saw something last weekend that you described on Twitter as the greatest thing you've ever seen. <laughs> Can you enlighten us? What could this possibly be? Well, at the risk in the light of day now here, days later, I do want to make sure we read that tweet correctly. Did I say that might be the greatest thing? Right? I'm just going to go with the, I'm going to make sure that I'm not accused of being uh, the insane tweeter that I am. But I, it's true. By the way, did you add that that twi- tweet was in all caps? Did we add that? Yeah, I've got, uh, I've got it here in all caps. I don't know if that necessarily <laughs> translated on air, um, but there you go. Uh, the all caps is key. Just like when uh, when LeBron James left the Cavaliers to take his talents to South Beach mm-hmm. and Cavaliers owner Dan Gilbert took to, to email on a rant and, and did it in that fo- Comic Sans font, which was like that really goofy font that everybody's like, why is this rant in Comic Sans font? <laughs> So it's always important the uh, the look of, this, of what you put out there. So make sure that we get the all caps out there. This is what Steph Curry has done to me, guys. This is what Steph Curry has done to me and all of America and, dare I say, all of the sports world. I, we're getting the vibe that he's global, guys. We really are. Um, you know, we talked months ago, I think, about that conference call that he did where he, uh, uh, journalists from all over uh, Asia and Africa and Europe and Australia called in, and uh, and their comparison was made to Lionel Messi, or I guess you guys might call him Leo Messi. I don't know mm-hmm. what the hip terminology is over there. But um, that might be, like, accelerated to the nth degree now after Saturday night's performance on national TV at Oklahoma City. I'm sure many of your listeners know by now, but those who don't, who need the refresher – the Golden State Warriors, who still remain stridently on point to have the greatest season in the history of the NBA, surpassing Michael Jordan's 1995-96 Bulls as the Warriors continue to, to zoom towards that record, had a stern test at Oklahoma City, a game Thunder team with Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant, who played great all night long and led the Warriors all night long until the Warriors somehow, way, forced overtime through the dint of Steph Curry's, I believe he had 10 three-pointers at that point, 
and then two more in the overtime. And, oh, by the way, the second one was his 12th of the night, tying an NBA single-season game record held by Kobe Bryant and Danielle Marshall. was his 288th of the season, which broke his own single-season record in game 58 of an 82-game season. Hashtag Wayne Gretzky type stuff here. Hashtag Messi. And it was also a 38-foot shot with 0.7 seconds left that broke a 118-118 to tie and sent me and the rest of America into apoplexy Mm -hmm. because we just haven't seen anything like it. And it might be, guys, the greatest thing. I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly might be. That's how you get uh, print caps lock on air and on podcast. But, but listen, the, yeah, the messy, the messy comparison is happening. There was a piece by Jonathan Liu in the Telegraph in the UK making that precise point. Curry himself has mentioned it in the past, actually, which we found quite interesting. He reckons that both himself and Messi are field players, flair players, players who dare to surprise. And interestingly. In the same way that we've been talking about this in the opposite, in the same way that Leo Messi, what he's done along with Cristiano Ronaldo, is totally redefined what is deemed an excellent uh, goal scoring return. It used to be that if you got a goal every two games, you were a world class striker and you could potentially be one of the one of the best strikers of your era. Whereas now, because of himself and Ronaldo, you're expected to get a goal a game or certainly come somewhere close to that. That That's going to be the touchstone in future years when we talk about these great goal scorers. The way you're describing the three-point records that Curry is putting up now, he seems to be in that zone. So much so that every second story I read now involves people saying that they have to change the rules, that there are too many three-pointers being scored now and you have to actually move the three-point line back a bit. That's actually, it has been written. I haven't heard it discussed on any serious level, like, you know, in the league office or anything like that, because, guys, like I said, hashtag Wayne Gretzky, hashtag Babe Ruth, hashtag Wilt Chamberlain, (laughs) Michael Jordan, those are our American guys. You guys mentioned a, who was the cricketer you guys mentioned to me that was like the Don Gretzky? Yeah, Don Bradman, yeah, from Australia. That guy. Yeah. The guy who set records that are just like so out, so that, and to use the Malcolm Gladwell term, outlier, that you have to just look at these people as aliens and, and revolutionary figures. So I have read that, that they've talked about uh, is the next step to move the three point line back. But to be honest, Curry's the only guy doing it at this insane, messy Ronaldo level. So you can't react to that one guy. Well, now, Augusta did it. Didn't Augusta tiger-proof their course? It would be almost the exact same <laughs> measure. <laughs> well, yeah, there's that thought. And, and to be honest, Wilt Chamberlain was so dominant as a seven foot three athlete. You know, basketball had seen seven-footers before, George Mikan and guys like that, but none as dominant and skilled as Wilt Chamberlain. So they actually widened the lane of the baskets uh, down near the basket, so you, so Will Chamberlain couldn't be close enough to the basket. So there is precedent to changing a rule just for one guy. It's kind of amazing and kind of mind-blowing. So we'll see. I don't think that will happen, though. I really don't, because Steph is so crazy, and also because I think people are really, really enjoying it. I don't think people see it as cheapening the game at all. I think what they see is a guy who is meshing his skill set, which has always been very, very high, going back to college at Davidson, with a work ethic that is kind of on that uh, that Jordan level, that um, just that drive to never accept where he is. Uh, so you're seeing his skill mesh with his work ethic, 
and it, and it, and it's meshing with a thrill set, like a, not, not a skill set, but like a thrill set that, that just has people gasping because he's redefining what we consider to be a normal shot in basketball, what they say, stretching the court beyond credulity. I mean, you just, you don't pull up from 30 feet. You just don't. It's a terrible shot. It's a terrible shot for most people. When I took, when I played high school basketball, we used to have, you know, our defense, and this is like, of course, on a simple level, but our coach would tell us, so listen, you know, if we force the guy into a 20-footer, that's what we want to do. You know, that's a low percentage shot. And if he makes it, if a guy makes a tough 20-footer with your hand in his face, you know what you say? You say, good shot, and we go down and we try to score, and hopefully we'll force him into that shot again because he'll miss it. Because you want to force people into 30-footers. What moron takes a 30-foot shot? You don't do it. Except for your Steph Curry, you do it at an extremely high level, and now defenses are utterly confounded. What do you do? Do you pick him up at half court? I mean, I guess that's one thought. But if you do that, you run the risk of him running right past you. And then he has the whole court to work with. He can take it to the basket, or he can pass to a teammate. You don't want to pick him up that early, because then he can beat you that early. So he's essentially unguardable right now, despite what Oscar Robertson the great Big O unfortunately said on national radio on Thursday that he felt that Steph Curry was a product of NBA's bad defense and that coaches didn't know how to play coach defense anymore. And if they did, Steph Curry wouldn't be doing what he's doing. And it was such an unfortunate moment because Oscar Robertson is a guy who isn't as famous as Michael Jordan or Magic Johnson or Larry Bird, but is easily one of the 10 greatest players in the history of the game. That used to average triple doubles. It was unfortunate because he's such a classy guy caught up in the inability to appreciate what Curry's doing. One of my favorite moments of the night after Curry hit the 38-footer for the win, (laughs) again, setting the single-season record and tying the single-game record and setting me into all-caps lock, Mark Jackson, who was the Warriors coach for Curry's first few years and actually deserves a lot of credit. For, for making Steph into a very confident player, but then wound up being such a cantankerous dude with the owner that he got fired, sort of a la Jim Harbaugh, Jed York. But he's now doing TV color commentary. And as, as, the, as the mania was subsiding in the arena and Steph was kind of skipping around the court and we were all losing our minds, Mark Jackson just kind of broke the silence on the TV and he said, he, he's from Brooklyn, so he has a Brooklyn accent, he said, just say sorry, big O. Just say Sorry. And it was like a great line from Mark Jackson. And he's right. Oscar Robertson joins the list of people who shouldn't try to diminish what we're seeing. So the the Warriors are 54 and 5 now is the record at the moment. And Yeah, they won last night. By the way, little note, he didn't play last night. Yeah. Uh, it's Draymond yeah, Green draining you know, three-pointers. Which was a whole other story, too. But he... Uh, he turned his ankle in that game that he hit the 12 three-pointers. And, and that's another part of that story, is that he came back from a severe ankle turn to hit that, that flurry of shots down the stretch. And an ankle turn so severe that he actually missed their 54th win against the Atlanta Hawks on Tuesday night. So anyway, yeah. That's, uh, yeah, but that's, uh, that's correct. They're 54-5. and five. Yeah, so they're, they're beating everyone. And yet this doesn't seem to be uh, having any impact whatsoever on their massive popularity. 
um, that they're the winningest team in the league, uh, as you would say over there. Closing in on the all-time record of the Chicago Bulls, Murph. Yeah, and no one, uh, no one seems to mind getting schooled, uh, you know, four or five <laughs> nights a week. Uh, they're on the front page of the of Sports Illustrated this week. Rick Riley, the great sport, former Sports Illustrated writer, returns to Sports Illustrated to write the, st- the story of the American sports year so far. Uh, the brilliant Golden State Warriors and how popular they are and how much they love each other. Uh, I mean, this is kind of, you know, Steph Curry is over in uh, uh, Africa it doing charitable yeah. work, meeting sick kids, engaging with fans, uh, eschewing all of the security that Michael Jordan just took as a right, uh, hanging out with his teammates. This is all, this has got to be too good to be true, surely. Well, it is, and, it, and, and we're getting there. There is, the, if you spend enough time online, which, you know, I recommend to nobody, by the way. But if you, if you spend enough time online, you see they're out there. There are people out there who are, are sick of it already, who say that, you know, and, and then Riley addresses it in the piece, that the Warriors were a, uh, a lucky team that had an easy road to the finals last year and that they still will lose at some point because they're not big enough and they don't rebound enough or all the cliches that you find. So they're out there. But it, to your point, Kieran, they're in a severe minority. We are definitely in the blush of a honeymoon with these guys. And, and I mean the, the most blush of a honeymoon. I mean, it's like as, as fun a honeymoon as this country's had with a sporting team, maybe that I could ever remember. I, I mean, to be so universally enjoyed right now. Now, of course, anything that sticks its head out of the gopher hole, gopher hole long enough in American society now or maybe world society now, with overexposure and everything. It's good. The backlash comes. Of course the backlash comes. And now everybody... But I would argue that maybe we have seen a little of it with the Oscar Robertson comments, with Charles Barkley, you know, as, as great a commentator as Charles Barkley is and as popular as he is in the States, he still has been a guy who takes... sort of goes out of his way to diminish what the Warriors have done Interestingly, he stayed quiet the last week or so when Steph's done all this stuff. But uh, so there, I mean, just want to make sure that, you know, as much as that SI piece was a gush fest about how incredible the Warriors vibe is right now, Oscar Robertson and Charles Barkley and a couple others out there are, are, are out there. They're, they're on watch. And I think there's some people sort of waiting for them to stumble and fall in the postseason against the San Antonio Spurs or those very same Oklahoma City Thunder who they beat. And, you know, it's not a fait accompli that they're going to get past the Spurs in the Thunder. I would rate their chances at like 95%. But injury, strange things happen. And the Spurs remain this team that, well, you know what's incredible about the Spurs? They're only four losses worse than the Warriors. The Warriors are 54-5. and five. I think the Spurs are 50-9. and nine. Yep. I think it's the seventh best record in the history of the NBA. so And they've only played the Warriors once this year, and they rested Tim Duncan in that game, which is kind of what Greg Popovich does. He plays with lineups and plays with opponents' heads. So they still haven't seen the Spurs at full strength. Now, in that game, the Warriors played fantastic, and they basically ran the Spurs off the court. And the Spurs looked old and tired, and they really, really did look like a team not ready to compete with them. And maybe that might very well be the case. The Warriors might sweep them. Now they play again March 19th, Saturday night, in San Antonio. That'll be the Fort Warriors' first trip down there, and that'll be a huge box to check off on the Warriors' list. But the larger picture is, guys, 
They went 67 and 15 last year and won the championship, and now they're 54 and five. So let's do some quick math. What are they? 121 and 20. I mean, this is. You know what, guys? This might be the greatest thing. I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, you to continue the comparisons with Barcelona there, it strikes me talking about their almost their goody two shoe image. This is exactly what Barca have. They're all supposed to be best mates. This was even brought up to Cristiano Ronaldo last week, much to his chagrin at a press conference, a question along the lines of, you know, why do you think those guys get on so great when you're you and your Real Madrid players uh, teammates don't seem like such good mates? But Leo Messi is clearly in the uh, in the role here of Steph Curry. I guess Neymar Murph would be Clay Thompson. Yeah. And Draymond Green would be played by Luis Suarez. Has to be. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, so you've got this incredibly, uh, almost, uh, at times almost sickeningly um, nice bunch of, oh, well, maybe Suarez maybe has had his incidents in the past. But you've got this idea that they're all best mates, basically. This is the reason that's, that they're successful. And that's what comes across in the Rick Riley piece as well. Yeah, I was watching that game in full, Brian, the, the match on Saturday night. It was absolutely amazing. And one thing that struck me was they came back after half time, and the reporter outside the locker room came back with a great scoop uh, that Draymond Green had totally lost his shit during the break, had gone shouting at people, giving out to everybody, effing and blinding. And then was, somebody goes to him, I'll sit down there, big man. And he said, You sit me down, you sit me down, roaring and shouting, things getting thrown around the place. Then they walk out and are supposed, supposedly all best mates. Now, I just kind of think the idea that that they can be as nice as they're made out to be seems to be a little bit of a stretch. I mean, that's a proper bust-up, which is, you know, which is more reminiscent of the Bulls team maybe in the 90s. Definitely. And it's a great angle to this whole thing because it does add a layer of intrigue and, and depth to what is otherwise perceived as the happiest team on earth, right? And, and I think what it was, it was first of all, you're right, it was a great scoop. It was Lisa Salters of ABC. It was interesting, the ethics, too, of um, what they call ear hustling when you're yeah. standing outside a locker room. Yeah, very interesting. I'm, I'm, yeah, so, I'm so glad yeah. that she um, ear hustled and then told the world about what she'd heard. It was great. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and the catch is, you know, journalism ethics, too, would be like in the old days before sort of the immediacy of Twitter and all that you'd want to talk to the players involved before you reported it. You know, like when I came up in newspapers, you'd be viewed as like irresponsible if you didn't like get context or quotes from the players. But these those days are gone, baby. Those days are gone. Now we're going with immediacy. So whether it's right or wrong or whether you agree with it or not, uh, she reported it. And you're right. It was a juicy as hell tidbit. And it shined a light on a number of things. A, um, is this indeed the happiest team on earth, or is there uh, trouble in paradise, you know, when that goes on? B, does this happen more often than we know, and that often there's not an ABC reporter stationed outside the locker room? You know, C, how much is, uh, attention does Draymond Green, uh, how much attention does Draymond Green bring to the building? How much is he really the emotional leader of the team, or how much is he maybe a guy who causes some problems, you know? All these things got brought up, and believe me, we spent couple of days talking about him on San Francisco Sports Talk Radio on KMBR. You know, a lot of people said this. Listen, Steve Kerr, being the guy he is, who played on the 95-96 Bulls, he's the coach of the Warriors, and just handles himself about as well as any coach I think I've ever seen in all my years covering sports media as far as being honest and open and using a sense of humor to deflect questions and to kind of artfully answer people without disrespecting them but also protecting his his house. He's a very, very, very skilled leader. And he addressed the Draymond Green issue head on. He didn't duck it or tell people to, 
to bug off or anything. And, and he acknowledged, he said, it's very unusual that that happened is what he said. But he said, you know, he said, hey, listen, this is what Draymond Green does. He's emotional. Now, Steph Curry said, the beauty of our team is that we're united when we leave the locker room. And to be honest, I think Draymond lit a fire under us. The other thing you look at is how did the team play after that? Was there bad body language a la the L.A. Clippers with Blake Griffin? Was there bad body language a la the Cleveland Cavaliers and LeBron James who just can't ever seem to find the right chemistry, you know, blaming, you know, David Blatt as coach or Kevin Love as teammate for everything? You know, was there that or was there a cohesive team effort that, you know, maybe showed that they all are still pulling on the same rope? And the blow in the Warriors' favor was that they did have a cohesive. They were down 11 at halftime and forced overtime, and then now it took a miracle shot by Steph Curry to win the game, but the point of the matter is they did win the game, and if you look at Draymond Green's performance since that blow-up, he had 14 rebounds and 14 assists in that game, which is a crazy line. Now, the real truth of the matter is that if you want to get inside baseball here, inside the game, uh, you know, I don't know how, many, how much your listeners care, but Steve Kerr has told Draymond Green to sort of cut down on shooting the three-pointer early in the possessions they want to have Clay and Steph cutting to the basket more and making defenses work more. And when Draymond would sometimes shoot threes early in possessions, Steph, Steve Kerr didn't like that. And when he was off on his sabbatical with his back injury, remember Steve Kerr missed the first 40 games of the year with this horrible uh, spinal fluid leak that he had. And Luke Walton was the, the coach of the team. Draymond was taking more threes, and since Steve Kerr's come back, he's kind of curtailed it. So, yeah, there's a little tension there. I think Steve Kerr's point is, yeah, of course there's tension. If, if you're not a highly competitive, proud team, then you don't have any tension. But if you are a highly competitive, proud team, you do have tension. So, you know, they said, listen, here's the, as Steve Kerr said, he goes, I think we're all right. He goes, we're the NBA champs, and we're 54-5. and five. I think we're all right. Interestingly, you want to see how they respond to the next game. In the Tuesday night game against the Hawks, when Steve, uh, Steph Curry and Andre Iguodala sat out, look who hit the game-winning three. Draymond Green. I mean, truly poetic. Mm-hmm. It was a 104-103 lead in overtime against a good Hawks team, and the Warriors had one second left on the shot clock, and they had to inbound, and Draymond put up what he even admitted was a desperation heave, but it went in kind of poetically, and they wound up winning the game. So he winds up looking like a hero again, and the Warriors get their 54th win. And, you know, it's definitely something to keep an eye on, though, as we go forward and, you know, realizing that human beings are not uh, – they're not perfect and idyllic 24-7, 365. I think so, Brian. Listen, brilliant as always. Thanks, Emil. All the best. And don't forget, Owen, you were on the bandwagon first. Oh, yeah. Splash Brothers T. <laughs> I will never forget that, Owen. So take care, guys. Thanks, Brian. All right, guys. Oh, there's blackjack and poker and the roulette wheel. A fortune won and lost on every deal. All you need is strong heart and a new steel. Viva! Thanks a lot, Pepe. Go ahead, Yes, sir. I'm the new World Federator of the Championship. Go I mean, don't get me wrong, Kieran. I do. I believe in this warrior story. Mm-hmm. As Brian says there, I've been on the bandwagon since day one. Or at least one of the more recent days. Last games of the... Second last game of the playoffs last year. But, but I did find that Rick Riley story a little too much. It was, it was, everybody was nearly too perfect. Like there's a story, for example, of Curry and he's walking. So the Warriors security chief, Ralph Walker, has done all the recce in, they're in Cleveland or some such place, playing a match and he had done all the recce to get a clear passage 
for Curry out of the ground afterwards, out of the stadium afterwards, across, uh, you know, through some back entrance and a back exit, I should say, across the road and into the side mm. entrance of the hotel. So he didn't have to be bothered by people. Curry says, OK, yeah, I'm tired, whatever it is. Maybe for once I'll, I'll take the easy option and uh, ignore the fans and get back to the hotel. So he's halfway across the road. I'll pick it up here. Curry and the Warriors security chief, Ralph Walker, were halfway across the empty four-lane street when they heard, Steph, Steph, sign. It was three kids a good 50 yards away. Now, nearly any other athlete in the world would have suddenly been stricken deaf. Not Curry. He looked at Walker, his shoulders sagged, and then waved them over. 20 more were right behind. Curry signed until his fingers couldn't hold the Sharpies. He only signed 23 autographs. Yeah. <laughs> how could his fingers not, how could he not sign 23 autographs quite comfortably? Yeah. He's a professional basketballer. He's got strong hands, good wrists. Yeah. This guy no, should be could. able to sign a lot of... He could have signed a lot more autographs than that. I mean, I know. Well, I mean, it's um, you know sub zero uh, uh, conditions there. I know because I've been using a sharpie a lot recently. What? I've been <laughs> I've been um, I've been writing a lot of stuff with a sharpie over the last mm. couple of days. Compliment slips for. I'll tell you why, Owen. I'll tell you why, because we we did a, an offer there for our uh, second sports annual. Yeah. Um, to uh, send it free shipping anywhere in the world. Mm. A deluge of orders. <laughs> a deluge of orders from stingy men in <laughs> places as far flung, as far afield as Hong Kong. Uh, by the way, the addresses in China. Yeah, come on. Are very come, long. I know there's like 1.2 billion of you and everything, but I mean, come on. <laughs> one, one guy in China. Oh, my God. Tower I, I, two. I, you know, there's a box to write the address. It's quite a big box. I mean, I'm written all over the front of this, of this package. Mm-hmm. Hopefully it finds its way to you out there. You know, Vancouver, there's a lot of people in Vancouver. Mm. Switzerland. Switzerland. How many many listeners in Switzerland do we have? Big shout out to our Switzerland listeners. Tax exile listeners over in Switzerland. I mean, those people can afford the damn postage and packaging. I don't know why they waited on there. Yeah. I mean, yeah. We sent one to Rancho Cucamonga as well in California. Cucamonga, Kalamazoo, Wagga Wagga. Um, Literally all within like three minutes We said the three places It was like, I don't know I like the, sometimes I'm kind of wondering why can't you just have addresses Like Irish addresses, which are just a series of single words One after the other And then you, you know the, This postcode thing that we've brought in There's no need for those things No There's just no need Yeah in Ireland. But in China. Well, maybe in China. There's, there's a way of, there has to be some way of, you know. But look, I, I've written out a lot of. Uh, you did, you got to weigh more than 23 and your hand was still okay. And you're not. Hand was, fast hand was fine. Different. Brain was beginning to rebel a little bit. <laughs> but hand was in good shape. We haven't talked to Donald Trump yet with the US American. No. We might have to rectify that pretty soon. There was a good piece this week on Slate.com about Trump and his sporting links. Well, this week uh, might have been a pretty good week to do it, actually, because the WGC Cadillac Championship is at Trump National Doral uh, yeah. starting today. Well, we can do it next week, don't worry. Uh, but no, Jordan Spieth, Rory McIlroy, Jason Day, all the top players all playing. And, uh, yeah, it's been interesting because uh, the PGA of America were one of the first organisations uh, in America after the uh, Donald um, launched his campaign by slagging off Mexicans and calling them rapists. Uh, that the PGA Tour were one of the first to take action, however mealy-mouthed the action was. Uh, within a week of that, they had cancelled the uh, 2015 PGA Grand Slam of Golf, which was supposed to be held at Trump National in uh, Los Angeles. Um, uh, but ever since then, uh, 
and uh, to be fair, the LPGA Tour, it was uh, the their, the British Open was due to be held at Trump Turnbury. Uh, God, I'd say the the the, the members at Trump Turnbury are one hundred percent calling it Trump Turnbury the whole time, but uh, they said that basically the statement had happened too late for them to change a venue. Uh, but by no means, however, does this decision suggest support for Mr. Trump's comments. So uh, now, in, and the uh, Royal Ninja have said that they won't go back to Turnbury as long as Trump owns it. Yeah, Trump. So, is, sorry, sorry, Diego. So basically, golf had they they were one of the swiftest. Uh, uh, major organizations in America out of the block to condemn and try and distance themselves from Donald Trump. And, hmm, just kind of seems to me that the PGA Tour of America would have a fair number of Donald Trump voters in and around there. I mean, I'd... Uh, no, I'd say most of them are, are Ted Cruz voters. Hmm. I'd, say, I'd say Cruz would win a primary among uh, PGA Tour members. Well, <laughs> that would be an interesting primary. I'd like to crunch the numbers on that one. Yeah. But uh, they're, all, they're nearly all Republicans to a man. Oh, yeah. And he is the presumptive nominee for the, the Republican. What appears to have got on... They're Republican establishment, though, aren't they? Yeah. They're all mil- Learjet-owning millionaires. What appears to have got on their nerves, the nerves of the golfing establishment, was... Trump saying, yeah, no, uh, he was asked about this. I don't know if it was, was it in uh, an interview with a golf magazine. I'm not sure. But Trump said, oh, no, they sure golf agrees with me. You know, like they all they all think I'm mm. on the right path here. And golf said, um, I'm great. No, we I'm don't. good for golf. Yeah. Uh, to which the PGA, uh, the head of the PGA in 2014, he went one better and said, Trump is great for golf. They are trying to change their tune. I mean, they, they obviously do want to distance themselves uh, from Donald Trump because Trump owns huge, huge yeah. Ken, huge. numbers of uh, uh, the best golf courses in America and obviously Turnberry in uh, Scotland and Doonbeg right here in Ireland. Uh, not that we made a big deal about it when he arrived, of course. Huge. Yeah. Uh, huge. They're being huge. abused. Our police are being abused. <laughs> <laughs> so they have, they, have a pretty, they have a pretty fine line to walk here uh, in that, hmm, when golf was in big trouble when the recession hit, uh, Trump came in and bought loads of their best golf courses. So Trump has been great for golf in that he pumped a load of money into them when it looked like the bubble was about to burst in golf. Uh, and now they have to try and distance themselves from him. Uh, and they're not doing a very good job, to be honest. Um, they've, you know, they, they come out with statements like, um, you, know, we, you know, we can't do this. Uh, in response to Mr. Trump's comments about the golf industry knowing he's right in regards to his recent statements about Mexican immigrants, we feel compelled to clarify that those remarks do not reflect the views of our organization. Uh, they shot back in a joint statement to the LPGA and the PGA Tour and the USGA and the PGA of America, uh, touting their strong commitment to an inclusive and welcoming environment. Uh, the only thing is, I'm reading this from a Slate.com article, as well, which you should definitely check out, uh, written by Paul Haney. We might tweet a link to it. Um, uh, if creating an inclusive and welcoming environment was so important to the golf tourists, they had chosen an odd collaborator. Uh, in an October 2014 interview with Golf Digest, Trump said that if he were in charge of the sport, he would make golf aspirational. Instead of trying to bring everybody into golf, let golf be elitist, he later told Fortune magazine. You idiot. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a weird one. I mean, you know, obviously there are uh, rather more pressing things happening in America at the moment than you know the PGA Tour of America's response to Donald Trump. Well, but uh, I mean, Obama probably read that line off a teleprompter anyway. You know, that guy needs a teleprompter. Why are they? Trump. Why are they? I don't even understand why they're distancing themselves from now. Uh, 
Do they not remember what eating bread is soon forgotten? I suppose. Uh, Dana, Dana White, Dana White was uh, a lot more loyal than mm. them. He 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 came out and declared for Trump really early when it, when everyone still assumed he was just a joke candidate that they couldn't possibly even get the nomination. Uh, he was he was out there saying no. Donald well, see, Trump. this is the problem, basically, because everyone does think that golf is, you know, a bastion of white male privilege. Yeah. And the second he came out and said that about the Mexican immigrants, they f- they felt they had to lead the charge there. Hmm. Uh, and then, all, and as ever since that, that's, they, well, they, they were among the first to say, well, he can't say that. I mean, you know, what usually happens in a situation like this is that you are disgraced and... There are no second acts in American life. Mm. Uh, things have, the, the, the landscape has changed slightly yeah. since uh, July 2015 in relation to Mr. Trump. Yeah. And uh, golf were kind of thinking, well, if we just held our council for another couple of months, we could have the <laughs> president of the, of, a, of the entire country, the most powerful man in the world, who also happens to be an avid golf fan. Sounds like a chat we can have in the fourth. I don't think Trump's going anywhere in the next seven days or so, so I'm sure we can talk mm. to the US Murph about that. The Irish Times. Find Ruby will win Florida on everything we find. <laughs> the Irish Times Second Captain's Football podcast will be out today. That's. Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you talking about? What did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to you, I'd say it to you now. I'm down to Anfield and we'll see them. What are you doing down here, you show me, man? So, Owen, we're going to talk about the Premier League midweek. Premier League uh, midweek action. Richie Sadler is going to be in here talking to us. Richie attended Manchester United versus Arsenal last Sunday. Did he? Yeah, he was very excited about that. Oh, in advance, I haven't spoken to him since. So we'll have that conversation on air, I guess. We'll ask him, <clears throat> ask him about that. I'm sure he was, he was watching last night. Can you fill us in on his thoughts? Yep. The latest episode of the Conor McGregor show hits Las Vegas on Saturday night. He's piling on the pounds to fight Nate Diaz, who's taken the fight at incredible short notice after McGregor's original opponent, Rafael Dos Anjos, pulled out. Peter Carroll writes for Severe MMA and The Mirror, amongst others, joins us from Vegas. Peter McGregor's 4-1 to one on to win this. Um, is there any reason whatsoever to think Nate Diaz can spring a surprise after this is a point that he has made himself? He's only had less than two weeks preparation. Well, I think it's a valid point. You know, a lot of people are saying that's a ready-made excuse, but it's a very valid point because Connor has had sparring rounds, you know, for, for months leading up to this fight. Nate hasn't because he hasn't had a fight there to, to even be getting prepared for. It's a different story if he had an opponent lined up and it was just switched to McGregor at the last minute. But of course, you know, two weeks notice and preparing for like the unorthodox strikes of McGregor is very difficult. Um, you know, Nate is a very dangerous fighter. Um but he tends to really be successful when he gets people on the end of that long range. He just kind of uses a, a jab straight combination. It's very basic, but he tend, when he gets people to uh, fight his fight, it's very effective. And we've seen him do it to a lot of opponents. In his last bout against Michael Johnson, you know, that, that was how he won the fight. As well as that, Nate's brilliant on the ground. His big long legs are very good for setting up submissions like that from the guard. But the problem 
with getting that game to work for him is closing the distance on McGregor. Um, most of his takedowns come from like, clinching up and getting in close to his opponents. And I just don't see him being able to close that distance against Connor, given the power he has in his hands. But he does have some valid ways, like really, really effective ways to finish this fight. But I just don't think he can do it. I think it's a very good matchup for McGregor. And I really see it like a showcase from the way we saw him fight Seaver back in Boston. Basically, everybody knew that Connor was going to go in and, you know, basically showcase his ability in that fight. And I feel like this is a very similar fight in that regard, with all respect to Nate Diaz. Mm. Uh, I've been looking at some of the videos, uh, some of the sort of embedded videos and that this week, showing uh, what McGregor's been doing in training. And I have to say, Ido Portal, the movement guru, uh, who kind of stole the show last time, seems to be back and more prominent than ever. Uh, and, and you could see him putting putting um, Connor through various paces, and I was wondering, where's John Kavanagh? I don't understand. I thought John Kavanagh was Conor McGregor's coach. Where is he? I can't see him in any of these videos. You know, I don't know if they're actually trying to play with us a bit because obviously last time out, we were all pretty much, we were, we were completely uh, bewildered by what was going on at that open workout. You know, he had like a stick out and Conor was jumping up and down over it. And I was thinking, worried. well, you know, I hope this hasn't been, you know, a six-week camp for this fight hasn't been based around him jumping over a pool cue. But, um, you know, John is still obviously Connor's head coach. He's over here with Owen Ruddy. And, you know, last time out, John said, Ido Portal's brought in to really settle Connor down uh, in the lead up to the fight. But, you know, Connor knows how to get the people talking. And I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, the camera crew has come in and he has Ido. Uh, training him on the pads with like you know when he's when he's doing punching rounds which seems very surprising as as a man from movement culture rather than combat it seems uh, quite a bizarre move but um you know i think it's all it's all um part of mcgregor's plan really to just keep the talk up ahead of this fight i mean what is what do you i mean you use the phrase movement culture what is movement culture i i believe it's good for the longevity of connor's career because He's moving very well, I suppose, is what people would say. You know, it's, it's kind of freeing up his body, as he says. And, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, making his body move these ways and especially his knee that he's had trouble with in the past. He believes that's going to uh, allow him to not get injured on that knee in the future. Uh, I don't know. You know, I have no scientific knowledge of what Ido Pardon does. He's very impressive. You know, his pull-ups are incredible. But I don't know uh, if that's going to help Connor when it comes to you know, throwing digs in the middle of the octagon. But, uh, you know, that's that's the real thing that we were all talking about last time. We were like, really, is is this what he's training like? But, you know, um, the results that came with that fight, you know, speak for themselves, 13 seconds against Jose Aldo. So, you know, on t- but I can see him being this, like, you know, thrown under the bus if Conor does uh, lose, you know. I think oh, a lot yeah. of people will say, well, you know, why was he why is he training with Oido Portal? Why is he doing, like, these uh, yoga stances and stuff instead of actually just kind of doing some pads with Roddy. But, um, you know, I'm sure he's doing all of that stuff as well. You know, Roddy flew out on Monday and he works, you know, diligently with uh, Connor on the pads. They kind of, they work as sequences. And Roddy was telling me, you know, with Nate Diaz changing over, they're going to be doing a lot of work specifically for that long range. So I expect there is a lot of work that we're not being, we're not being shown as well going on. The other thing that he's doing besides moving well is eating very well. I mean, a lot of, you know, what he's saying this week seems to involve him kind of stuffing his face and bragging about how full he feels and, and how, how how nice this is because he doesn't have to cut down to 145 pounds. But I wonder what you make of this huge kind of jump in weight class that he's that he's um, 
that he's making here. I mean, 170 pounds, first of all, means that he's going to be fighting against much bigger guys. I mean, Nate Diaz would be the biggest guy, I think, by, you know, by a long way that he's fought so far in the UFC. Um, but also, it's just, it's hard for me to imagine him cutting back down to 145. How can anybody do that? How can anyone sort of fluctuate, uh, you know, so widely between weight classes? I mean, it must, if, if the weight cut gets, gets more difficult every time, then kind of becoming accustomed to fighting at welterweight must make it even harder to, to envisage doing it again. Uh, yeah, I completely agree with you. And I said it straight after the Aldo fight. We'll never see Conor fighting at featherweight again. Um, my view on the situation is that he wants to make uh, that historical, you know, the first guy to hold two two UFC belts to two different weight classes. But that doesn't necessarily mean he'll ever have to fight at featherweight again. As long as he holds on to that title, you know, he, he might fight, if he wins this fight, he might fight, fight Dos Anjos at 200. He'll literally hold them two belts for about a minute and then he can, you know, uh, he'll vacate the featherweight title. But he... Well, for that minute, he was still the first man to ever hold two UFC titles simultaneously. The way I look at this fight is it's a very good fight for him in terms of giving himself a business position. And we know Connor often talks about, you know, how he how he's driven by the business aspect of the sport. If he goes in and beats Nate Diaz at 170 pounds, you know, there's the speculation is there and the talk is there and for people to open up three, like, you know, fights for him across three different weight categories. Um, Brendan Schaub, a uh, former UFC fighter, uh, said on his own podcast last week that he had been out for lunch with Connor, and Connor literally told him, like, I don't care about these belts. Like, the belts mean nothing for me. I'm trying to do something completely different, and, uh, you know, I just want to fight at every weight class. And what you were saying about Nate Diaz being um, 170 pounds, you know, this guy, off, like, he's fought more fights at lightweight. He is, you know, he actually gets outpowered a lot when he's fighting at welterweight um you know his record at welterweight isn't as good as his record at lightweight at all but um you know i wouldn't consider him the biggest he's definitely the tallest guy that connor connor's fought but uh you know it's a good matchup for him in terms of 170 because i don't think diaz is a natural 170 either you know so basically i think if connor ever is going to go for that welterweight title he can only do it with robbie lawler at the top of that division because robbie lawler fights in a way that suits McGregor so much. You know, he just goes into the middle of the octagon and he exchanges blows. He rarely looks for takedown, stuff like that. But outside of Lawler, that 170-pound division seems to have terrible matchups for Conor. You know, these guys are monsters um, outside of Diaz. You know, they have massive wrestling backgrounds. They're exploding into takedowns. Um, and then they have a great striker there at 170 pounds who's really being held up with his own title shot because of... McGregor's aspirations to fight Lawler. You know, Stephen Wonderboy Thompson is an amazing striker. He, he's probably the most pinpoint striker in that division. If he came up against McGregor, we might even see the Irishman being outstruck. So, you know, it, it's very, it's like it's all just full of speculation now. And I think that's what Connor wants us to do. You know, he wants us to think he can go absolutely anywhere after this. I, I highly doubt that he'll go any further than. Uh, 170 pounds for the rest of his career but he will of course say that he wants to but whether ufc will want him to do that like i, I actually believe that connor thinks he can beat everyone like that's that's the kind of guy we're dealing with here he has that's like such a strong mental belief in himself that he really believes he could go up to any division and beat any of these guys but as ufc are his employers they'll obviously step in when when he's uh when he kind of gets too much when he asks for too much you well know, I, yeah I doubt. we'll see about that peter obviously you know a lot more about this than i do but the way mcgregor's talking and the way some of the other guys in in the ufc seem to be talking now uh, uh this is something that's been on the cards for a while mcgregor 
I mean, McGregor is the UFC now and possibly is bigger than the UFC. But I don't know, th- this fight, in a way, is it beneath him where he's at at the moment in the sense that it, he's seeming to have to hype it up? It's another fight where his original opponent has pulled out uh, or or is it going to be like the Chad Mendes fight, and which ended up being quite a spectacular event despite the fact that he, he wasn't the original opponent? Yeah, I think that's what it is, to be honest with you, Joan. Um, you know, it's the spectacle of this fight that really has MMA fans, you know, um, you know, has them so excited because Diaz brings such an attitude to the octagon and so does Connor. And we're, we're expecting to see two guys throwing up their middle fingers and screaming at each other in the middle of the of the octagon as they hit each other. You know, it seems like I, I don't know how we've seemed to just let go of the idea of the history making. All this kind of stuff has just been cast aside. But it is because of the, the fan bases these guys have. Like, you know, Diaz is is maybe even more of a polarizing figure inside the MMA community than, than uh, McGregor is. And so that's what it really is. It's two massive names meeting each other in the octagon. You know, Diaz has never been near a welterweight title shot. You know, I doubt that, um, you know, anyone else would beat Diaz and then walk into a, a welterweight title fight. But as you said, McGregor is UFC now. And he is, it seems to me that he is calling the shots. You know, this kind of stepping up through different weight classes, it's never been done before. And UFC need to keep him happy and need to keep, you know, making these big fights to get the Irish across to Las Vegas to spend all their money. And I mean, that's that's basically what they're trying to do, uh, even though I doubt that there will be the same support this time around. All right, listen, Peter Carroll, enjoy the fight. Thanks, Emil. Thanks, guys. Yeah, that dynamic between McGregor, Kavanaugh and the movement coach is quite interesting. It is. Well, just, I, I, I don't really know a great deal about it, Owen, but uh, obviously John Kavanaugh and Conor McGregor, well, John, you seem to be pretty tight and uh, suddenly it's just Ido Portal everywhere you look, <laughs> with a different form of training. So I suppose anyone looking on at that would just think, oh, I wonder, are there, are there any jealousy issues in this camp here? Um, but hopefully everyone's on the same page. Diaz threw out all those steroids allegations last week, mm. which seemed to irk Conor McGregor, but... I don't know if they've even had that much of an impact, have they? You can kind of throw those steroids allegations out in UFC. I know they've gotten their house in order somewhat in recent times. Yeah. Although that house was in such a state of disorder for so many years that that wouldn't be hard. Yeah, well, I mean, Diaz is... is I don't know if you've had the privilege, own of, of watching any... You know, of seeing this guy sort of in action speaking. But he's a spiky sort of character. He's a, he's a bit scatterbrained. Right. Uh, by which I don't mean to necessarily... I don't mean to dismiss everything that comes out of his mouth, uh, but he, he he often doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense from one sentence to the next. Uh, in this instance, when he comes out of that, I mean, that, that is a, a, a remarkable statement from a competitor in any sport, which you can imagine in most sports would, would cause, you know, shock, outrage, and further questions. However, when... Diaz said it. It's it's almost uh, well. There he there he you know mm. there he goes. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously it's it's hard it's 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 hard to know really what to think. I mean, do they do they really care that much about it? Well, they brought in Jeff Nowitzki, the guy who took down Lance Armstrong. Yeah, the former federal, federal officer Ken, who I heard speaking in depth to Joe Rogan in one of those 
two or three hour podcast. I don't know if people listen to the Joe Rogan experience. He certainly, he takes that, this idea that it's the internet. You can just speak for as long as you want. Joe Rogan takes that to extremes. Talks for a very long time to a lot of people. He did a, a barn burner with Lance Armstrong yeah. as, as well, which was, which came after actually. Lance had to get up and go to the toilet at one point. It was going so loud. Lance, I remember Rogan then saying, oh yeah, Lancey. You know, he's hung over. <laughs> Didn't he stay at that point? Or he usually leaves until about five to start drinking. Well, I thought, Lance, is a, surely you should wait till Lance gets back before we move into this, you know, sensitive yet very interesting subject. I think Armstrong did make a point. I think he did say, I had some beers last night yeah. as he was going. Oh, Lance, welcome back. We were just talking about your drinking. <laughs> yeah, well, that's kind of weird. But, uh, yeah, no, we talked to Jeff Nowitzki, who is now in charge of the UFC's anti-doping. Uh, and you would, that guy's a serious character, Nowitzki. He was largely responsible for a lot of what went in. Well, his investigation ultimately ran cold, in fact, into, into Lance Armstrong, but certainly a lot of the evidence that he had built up before that case was mysteriously dropped uh, was then used by USADA to take Lance down. And uh, there's also still the ongoing case between Lance and the, uh, the US government. But... Yeah, so they seem to be. They certainly are liking to put, are enjoying putting out the idea that they're now taking it seriously, and they've they've gotten rid of, I think, IV drips before fights and all these all these kind of measures. So it certainly does seem to be taken more seriously than it was. But I mean, it was a joke. Yeah. I think Rogan himself was saying that like it was ridiculous. You'd see guys in previous years, and just, and suddenly these new rules come in, and they're they're just half the fighter that they used to be. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, uh, there was, for for instance, Nate Diaz's boxing coach, uh, a guy called Richard Perez, was saying just a couple of days ago, after Diaz had said these things in the press conference, he basically said, oh yeah, I do believe that. Um, I know McGregor has got to be on some kind of steroids. (laughs) He's pretty big. Then all of a sudden he's jumping to 170. Yeah, there's no way. Because I mean, he was supposed supposed to be fighting at 155. Now, that doesn't necessarily really follow from me either, because this the, the thing about him is that he was too big to be fighting at featherweight anyway. You know what I mean? He was kind of, he was emaciated getting down to that 145 level. You know what I mean? So the idea that he could now, you know, fight at 170 isn't isn't so outlandish to me. I don't actually think he needs to bulk up. He just doesn't need to, you know, strip down, like to, to uh, lose, you know, a huge percentage of his body weight. Yeah. Um, I don't know. But but again, you know, like as, as Pete's was saying, um, Nate Diaz obviously hasn't prepared very much. I don't expect him to to lose. I think it would be quite interesting to see him fighting against a guy at that weight, a guy who who was you know was, uh, seriously a serious contender at that weight or a champion at that weight and had had preparation leading into it. Because you're talking about guys who are a lot bigger, you know, a lot taller, um, a very different type of challenge. And you know, looking looking at it with my amateurish eyes, it looks a lot more dangerous than some of the guys that he was, he's oh, yeah. been fighting against up to now. Undoubtedly, last story I want to canvas opinion on here is reported by Johnny Waters in the Irish Times today. These are the calls to ban tackling for school children in rugby. There was a letter signed by more than 70 doctors and health experts addressed to ministers, chief medical officers and children's commissioners in Britain and Northern Ireland as well as government, governmental departments in the Republic of Ireland. Watterson says World Rugby is having none of it. World Rugby's rejected the proposal claiming the tackling... Uh, sorry, they've rejected the proposal... They claim that tackling is a learned skill that takes many hours of practice to perfect safely and subjecting teenagers to tackling rugby 
after years of non-contact would be hazardous. So they say, this is a quote here, the key to injury prevention is the promotion of the best possible techniques, particularly in the tackle, says World Rugby. Suddenly introducing tackling at 18 would have an adverse effect in terms of injuries as preparing to play is key. What do you boys think about the calls to ban tackling in contact sports? Simon's over to talk about this as well. Okay, maybe you first. Well, uh, I think it's a, I think it's a busybody-ish intervention by attention-seeking doctors. You know, you don't think there's merit. No, I think there are bigger things for doctors to be working on. You know, get back to us when you've cured some of the killer diseases that are wiping out. Uh, people all over the world. Sure, but there I mean, are doctors working on that do- too. Doctors have different areas of expertise. <laughs> well, 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 what's well, your I deal? Think, I think they should move some more manpower into those areas because we're not, we still haven't cured cancer, Ken. Well, how, how dangerous is it, um, how, how, how dangerous is it for kids to tackle each other playing rugby? Not very. Well, they would, would claim, they would claim very. I mean, they do claim very in the letter. That's the, that's the point. Um, the majority it's of quite all, a diverse group as ma- well. It's not just doctors; it's scholars, it's academics. Yeah, the majority of all injuries occur during contact or collision, such as the tackle and the scrum. These injuries, which include fractures, ligament tears, dislocated shoulders, spinal injuries, and head injuries, can have short-term, lifelong, and life-ending consequences for children. Well, I don't know. I, I mean, to me, it seems as though tackling ch- children tackling each other is unlikely to be particularly dangerous because they're small. I mean, it's like that, you know, there's a line about, um, where is it? On Being the Right Size by J.B.S. Haldane. Now, I can't remember where I, where I read this thing, but it just come into my mind there. Um, gravity uh, uh, was a terror to Pope Egan and his bird. To the mouse and any smaller animal, it presents practically no dangers. You can drop a mouse down a thousand yard mine shaft and on arriving at the bottom, it gets a slight shock and walks away, provided that the ground is fairly soft. A rat is killed, a man is broken, a horse splashes. So... The size you are has a big impact, a big impact, so to speak, on how dangerous collisions are. I mean, two kids running into each other. Well, kids, well kids, kids get concussed all the time. I mean, children have died from second impact. Well, syndrome I don't know. You know, maybe, maybe they should. So clearly there are, clearly children do get injured and seriously injured playing rugby. I don't think that's even arguable. It's just... Well, there's the, the, dangerous the, things. Like, that, I mean, that, that is true. Yeah, that's what as, I was going to say. Do as many of them. I mean, what about cars? Climbing what, trees. Do, does, do, do, does anything ever happen to, to kids in, in automobiles? Yeah, no, I, I think that the, the, like they say, the size argument is very interesting because in uh, New Zealand, I was reading this before the, the World Cup, that the, there, there aren't uh, age grades, there are size grades. And as a result, you don't have, uh, you know, 12 year olds who have, who, you know, who could be you know, a third, again, yeah. the size of another 12-year-old playing against each other. Like, that that's obviously creates a... Uh, there's a danger to that. I mean, that's I, really damaging Zealand at senior level, though. I know. Well, see, they've somehow managed to bridge the gap there. <laughs> but, I mean, the this is one argument, you know, that the, the tackle is... But, I mean, what are kids watching? Kids are watching Jamie Roberts getting the ball... 20 times and not even for one second thinking about passing the ball or trying to sidestep someone just running as hard as he can directly at someone you're a big guy so your job on the rugby field is to take the ball and run at extreme pace into two other big guys and hope that a third guy a third big guy is needed to take you down and that's that's the sport so I mean I mean I I don't know what world rugby can say to concerned doctors of the world well world rugby have 
rejected this initial thing. This is part of a bigger campaign um, that will... Uh, the next phase, I think, is a petition, so it might be discussed by the MPs in the UK. But um, first of all, if you get rid of the tackle from up until under 18, it's a different sport. Don't call it rugby. Just start a new sport because it's completely different. But the other thing is, I don't know if any of you guys have ever taken up a rugby or a sport rather a little bit later in life. You just aren't very good at it. Your instincts aren't very good. You learn all those things before 18 years of age. The most dangerous part of it is a tackle. So world rugby are right. If you suddenly started tackling at 18 when you're almost fully grown, uh, there's way more people going to get injured all of a sudden. Oh, yeah, I agree with that. But do you feel that maybe what this group is trying to do is stimulate the debate? They don't realistically think this is exactly. going to work. Exactly, but which, there, is, but there which are, is why I think it's foolish if World Rugby is just rejected outright. Yeah, but there are there are further measures that can be taken, even though World Rugby would say they're doing all they can to safeguard. There Maybe there could be some sort of rule changes, rule tweaks to make to make it safer, do something with the tackle. You know, there's been talk of tackling below a certain mm. height, all this kind of thing, as opposed to... Out, outright banning tackling, which doesn't make much well, does, doesn't isn't too realistic, I don't think. Yeah, and see, this is interesting as well because soccer in the 1980s was getting more and more cynical, and they managed to bring in a set of rules, basically that you know Maradona, Maradona's Achilles tendon to try and protect Maradona and uh, Marco Van Basten's Achilles tendons. Too late, probably for Van Basten, but this idea that you come straight through a guy, you chop down a flair player, they've managed to actually. You know, they've managed to make uh, substantive rule changes that have made the game safer for the best players. Mm. Rugby can't do that. Because, I mean, notwithstanding the Yuan Maestri and Mike Brown incidents from the last couple of weeks, and I've heard a lot of people saying, you know, you've got to make rugby safer, you know. Um, That's not the problem. That's not the, the, the core, the central problem that's wrong with rugby right now. It's actually just that players are too big and they're running at, at each other at ridiculous pace over and over and over again. Yeah. And if you got rid of the, the, cynical... the most concussed players, according to a study into the top 14 French rugby over the last couple of years, are out halves. So they're the, exactly as you're saying, they're the one taking the most high impact, high speed tackles because it's the centre coming down their channel or flanker. So you're right, that's probably the most, the biggest issue with concussion. I don't think you can just give up on it concussion. though either. You, can, you can't just say, well, it's a violent game, therefore, what can we do? Well, Completely. You... They've already changed, say, scrum laws at school level that's made it far safer. So way less spinal injuries there and neck injuries. Um, so it's progression. Like there's, it's, it's a new sport. It's professional rugby. It's essentially a new sport. So they've uh, eliminated people contesting in the air quite recently. That's uh, got rid of that. The tip tackle is gone. You know, Brian O'Driscoll famously at that time, uh, there was no sanctions against the players, the New Zealand players. That's gone. Um, they, I think they'll get rid of people hacking at the ball that's on the ground near a player's head who's lying down. <laughs> they could have started I mean, by punishing yeah, Mike Brown know, last week. Yeah. It seems to me like... That you... will eventually, you know, they'll do it bit by bit as they realise this sport is completely different from what it was the rules and the referees are just miles behind the athletes that are currently playing it but you you know it still doesn't change the fundamental fact that in the this is a game which in which you can completely legally concuss someone yeah you know you can hit someone with a completely legal tackle everyone in the stadium will cheer and that person will be stretched off yeah, with a concussion true. that's that's part of the game how can you take that out of the game that's, you know, that's the, the whole but point of the make, game is I'll that. Just well, make it less frequent. Yeah. I mean, there's concussions in basketball and but football. But I mean, why? why? What, what's, you know, why? The, the, that's, this is the joy of this game. It's a, it's a tough game. It's an aggressive game, which is a, which is a, which is a trial of strength and endurance. Yeah, but I mean, uh, but well, I, well on, yeah. okay, here's an example. Why, what about horse racing? Horse racing is dangerous. What about enforcing a limit on how fast horses can run to try and make sure people don't get injured as much? It's really dangerous. People fall off, break their legs, break their necks, get concussed, I'm sure, lots of times. 
I mean, this is insane. How long are we going to let this go well, on? Well, what about... What about These horses should be told yeah. they can run at three-quarter space. Why don't we do that? Well, what about ice hockey, which is a ridiculously violent sport uh, and ha- has clamped down over the years and isn't quite as ridiculously... You know, I haven't seen an ice hockey game in a while, so I'm basing yeah. this on reports that I've read. But you can't... You, just because a sport is inherently has dangers, I think it's actually reckless to say, well, it's dangerous, so therefore... Why? Why bother trying to improve safety standards? That, uh, no, I, 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 mean, no. I, mean, I mean, Formula One. People used to die. Jackie Stewart did an interview once where he said, "Yeah, I think he counted up to fifty of his mates had died." Yeah. So but, uh, if people took that same attitude back then, it's ah, oh, it's motor racing. People die. Yeah, but You've got in, to try and of course, stuff. obviously. But and I think the ice hockey one is uh, actually a really interesting uh, example because what you're talking about there is they've gotten rid of the what, what's the name of the, the, the guy enforcer. the enforcer yeah. like they've the, basically the goon, yeah, yeah they, they've pretty much gotten rid of him from the game but that's like that's foul play that's a guy saying I'm going to impose myself physically like above the you know kind of beyond the law I'm beyond the law to intimidate the the opposition player what Ken is saying is that this is all in the law this is yeah. in the game that if if Johnny Sexton has the ball or whoever I, I shouldn't have mentioned Sexton anyone like any out half uh, Jules Plisson has the ball and CJ Sander bursts out the, from the side of a rock and smashes him before he gets a chance to pass yeah. the ball and he hits the ground. It's not even... It's it's just brilliant play. It's brilliant rugby play that happens to sure, but the, the guy. Sure, f- but the foul on Dave Kearney, for example, what was a foul and wasn't penalised. So I think at a very basic level, yeah. you have to start by actually enforcing your rules properly and I think yeah. it's been a disgrace, this Six Nations. It's been an absolute disgrace. Well, it just, I think it just everyone so, agrees with that. It just so happens. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, so start with that. You start with actually enforcing your rules and, uh, and, and not neglecting the safety of your players, which is what referees, citing commissioners and the Six Nations have been doing throughout this tournament. Yeah. But... At the same time, I do I do think you have to look at safety. You have to try and make it safer within within reason, while accepting it's never going to be fully safe. And starting with kids is probably <laughs> probably the best place to start. But well, what about like? I mean, I mean what, what harm in trying things? What harm in, in in trying to outlaw tackles above the chest, for example? Well, for example, you used to be able to tackle around the neck. Watch rugby in the seventies or, or above the you know above the stomachs. So. Yeah, yeah. So I think what it is is the start of a split between the amateur schools game and the professional game because they're two different types of people playing the sport. And that will be a good thing eventually. Um, and it's the start of a debate as well, as you said, Owen. I think that's ultimately what they're trying to do. They didn't expect their first proposal to be accepted by World Rugby. But I don't like World Rugby's response to immediately say, this is nonsense. Mm. Instead of just t- taking some of the evidence, looking at it and seeing if there's some sort of compromise down the road. Yeah, but at the same time, they're, you're asking them to completely, fundamentally change this one of the central tenets of their sport. Yeah. You know, I mean, I I accept your point completely on foul play has to be stamped out. But I mean, you know, they did that at the World Cup. Well, first, start, that's just as a starting point. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> it's a starting point to enforce your rules. I have a Jimmy Nesbitt update for you on. Yeah, go on. Yep, yep. Carol Frampton just tweeted there uh, uh, 10 minutes ago. Jim Watt must have been on the same stuff as Jimmy Nesbitt. That's Jim Watt, Sky Sports commentator. Jim Watt was given quite a few rounds. Quite a few to, rounds to you, I think he might have given... To Scott Quigg. Scott Quigg the fight, actually, or maybe called it a draw, something like that. Yeah, nice nice gag there from Frampton. What is well, I actually thought that was pretty funny. I'm, okay, you, you guys didn't. That's fine. That's what, Let's move on. Yeah. If this podcast has done nothing else, Murph, or this 24-hour period, it's turned my opinion around on Jimmy Nesbitt full circle. I'm going to give you a Jimmy Nesbitt update every podcast from <laughs> now on. I can't believe we don't have a bed for that. Thanks very much, Kieran. Thank you, Thanks, Thank Simon. you Ken. Thank, Thank you, Simon. Thank Thanks, you, Simon. Ken. Thanks, Thank everybody. Thanks for listening. Bye. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.